Welcome to Write Now with Scrivener, where writers talk about how they work, how they develop their ideas, and how they use Scrivener, the app built for long-form writing projects. I'm your host, Kirk McElhern, author of Take Control of Scrivener. Today, I'm happy to welcome Maggie Shipstead. Maggie is the author of three novels, Seating Arrangements, Astonish Me, and Great Circle, which has been shortlisted for the Booker Prize. Great Circle was a novel of love and loss and adventure, focusing on a woman pilot in the early days of flying and an actress portraying her in the present. Maggie, thank you very much for joining me. Oh, thanks for having me. Now, I have to start by saying that the people at Scribner Towers were delighted to read in the acknowledgments for this book. You said, it might be odd to thank an inanimate entity, but I could not have surmounted the organizational challenges of this novel without the writing application Scrivener. So, on behalf of the inanimate entity that is Scribner, I thank you for that acknowledgement. <laughs> well, you're welcome, inanimate entity. <laughs> That's great. We're going to talk about how you use Scribner in the second half of the show. But first, let's talk about Great Circle. I, I just, I find this novel fascinating. It's one of these, and I'm going to go out on a limb, I'm going to say that it's a sort of a slow adventure novel. It's not an adventure novel where there's where there's cliffhangers at the end of chapters, but there's this long, slow adventure that builds from the beginning through the 600 pages. Uh, yeah, that seems like an accurate description. Um, I think part of it was that I always start writing without any sort of plan. Like, I don't plot in advance. Um, and so I think, you know, I started writing under several sort of... Uh, uh, false apprehensions. Like I thought I would just write it in a year or two. Um, I thought it would be sort of a normal length book like my other books. Um, and it was, it was supposed to be about sort of the legacy of a disappeared, uh, aviatrix and less about sort of, uh, I didn't plan for it to have this close granularity of, of her sort of entire life. Um, so the pacing was was sort of accidental. Yes, it covers the period from the very early days of flying when Marion Graves discovers she first sees, what's the name for the pilots that do acrobatics? Um, barnstormers. Barnstormers, right. She first sees barnstormers and she realizes she wants to fly. At the same time, there's another thread involving an actress named Hadley Baxter who is going to play Marion Graves in a movie. And there's a fascinating echo between the two as you learn about the life of Marion Graves and Hadley Baxter's trying to figure out all of this. And at the same time, she's dealing with her issues of fame because she is, I guess, one of the best known actresses at the time, isn't she? Yeah, she's sort of, I guess the actress I thought about most in writing her was Kristen Stewart because when I started writing the book, which was almost exactly seven years ago in fall of 2014, um, some of her sort of scandals were still fresh in the the Twilight series and her relationship with Robert Pattinson. And um, so, yeah, I was thinking about someone who is famous to an uncomfortable degree, for sure. Yeah. And so Hedley Baxter is in this series called Archangel. And there's this wonderful scene where about the middle of the book, she meets the author of the novels in this restaurant in Los Angeles. You live in Los Angeles, right? I do. Yeah. So a lot of this is just you writing what you observe around yourself? Yeah. So I started writing um, the book kind of right when I moved to LA. And most of my friends in LA work in Hollywood. And so writing Hadley in some ways was such a relief from writing Marion because I could just write it. I didn't have to research. I didn't have to dig up all these details. It was just sort of, you know, ambiently absorbed from my surroundings. And I think Hollywood's really interesting 
Um, and it was also, I could kind of use, in some ways, readers' preconceptions or scandals they might already be familiar with. So you're kind of s starting from this shared um, knowledge, which is sort of what celebrity gossip is, you know, sort of creating this facsimile of a village life where we all know the same people. There's a sort of a template, isn't there, for the scandals and the way they're reported and the way the people react? Yeah, absolutely. And I think even more so then, uh, I think Hadley's sections are set in 2014. And I feel like our relationship to celebrity has shifted a little bit since then, maybe away from actors and toward reality stars or people who are sort of famous for being famous. Didn't they exist in 2014? I guess they didn't very much. I don't watch reality TV, so I, I only see what's ambient. They had the like the Survivor type shows back then, didn't they? Yeah, and they were like the Real Housewives. But I feel like the Kardashians weren't as much of a thing, and so yeah. people were more interested. It's just sort of fragmented, like everything else. I think. Yeah. So the idea for this novel was a sort of accidental discovery of a statue. Is it correct? <laughs> yeah. Um, in 2012, I saw a statue of a female pilot named Jean Batten at the Auckland airport right outside the international terminal. And I just had a project die on me. Um, I was waiting for edits on my second book, and I sort of thought, oh, I should write a novel about a aviatrix. Um, and I sort of sat on that for two years. I didn't really do anything with it because I was sort of dealing with my second book. Um, but that was really when I sort of just chose the subject matter. One thing that's interesting is you often have orphans in adventure novels, and in your case, you have orphans as well. Marion and her brother Jamie, they're twins and they're orphans, and Hadley is also an orphan. In one case, what was it? Well, the father of Marion and Jamie got off a sinking ship and then disappeared, but their mother died, and Hadley's parents died in a plane crash into a lake. So you've got two orphans, you've got planes, you've got transportation, adventure, movement. Is, is the orphan a, a, a way of having a blank slate for characters like that in some ways? Yeah, I think that is part of it. You know, you have someone who's not coming out of a traditional family unit. And so in some ways, at least in fiction, they're sort of creating an identity kind of whole cloth. Um, and I also thought, particularly for Marion and Jamie, that being uh, effectively orphaned, you know, they they sort of start their lives with the sense that there's something just over the horizon that they're looking for, like something that can't quite be found. And I think that makes them more seekers than um, they might have been otherwise. Well, also their upbringing by a somewhat non-conventional uncle gave them a lot of free range and latitude, didn't it? Yeah, they're very feral children growing up in uh, Missoula, Montana in the 20s. Um, and as I started writing Hadley, I think in my initial draft, Hadley wasn't an orphan. She had sort of a terrifying stage mother. Um, and I ended up aligning her biography with Marion's a little more, giving her these sort of coincidental um, bits of overlap, partly because I wanted Hadley... I mean, Hadley is someone who's always looking for, like, what's in it for me? You know, like, what is the universe telling me? And so I wanted to give her overlap with Marion so she would she would say, you know, maybe there's something here for me. Like, these are stars I should be reading. I, I think the bit that summed it up for me, the relationship between Marion and Hadley, as distant as it is, it comes about three quarters of the way through. And 
you realize that Hadley's trying to understand as much as possible about Marion to portray her. But then she says, I think sometimes people hope if they amass enough scraps, eventually the whole picture will become clear, but it can never become clear. And I guess that's the realization that as much as you can look at someone's past, and she does find out a lot about Marion's past that most people didn't know, you still can't find out everything about someone. Right. Yeah. I mean, even I think the people we spend our lives with or spend every day with, there's a real limit to how much we can know them. Um, and so, yeah, part of the function of Hadley in the book became to sort of create that lens on on how much is lost of a person. And, and when we're telling the story of another person, just how many assumptions and wrong guesses and sort of our own stuff is being projected into that. So this novel is 600 pages long, and that's the short version, right? It is, yeah. It lost about 25% of its length um, in edits with my publisher. I was thinking the other day, I've just started the new Jonathan Franzen novel, Crossroads. It's about 600 pages. There's a Dave Eggers novel coming out soon. It's about 600 pages. Is this the new norm for the big novel? <laughs> I don't know. You know, I think people, not everyone, as people have made sure to tell me, but I think a lot <laughs> of people do enjoy a long novel. You know, you can be in it for a long time. Um, but uh, yeah, it was funny when I was writing it, I remember somebody... Uh, send me a message on Instagram sort of asking what I was working on. And uh, I explained and he was like, do they even let women write books that long? <laughs> I was sort of like, okay, we'll find out, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> well, to be fair, there are few fantasy novels written by women that are less than 600 pages long. There are genres when 600 pages is the normal, but in sort of traditional, I don't like the term literary fiction, but sort of mainstream fiction, it is kind of rare. Yeah, it it is. Um, and, and some of it, I mean, in the edit process, there was a lot of conversation about, like, do we need the incomplete histories or sort of like, do we even need Hadley? And I really did stick by wanting it to be long and complex. I, I was really not interested in, in simplifying it dramatically, although my editor was completely right that it was good to cut the 250 manuscript pages we cut. But you, you don't know that it was completely right because you don't know how it would be received if it was longer. It, to be fair, it would be criticized for more than 600 pages. A lot of people would say it's too long. Yeah, I mean, people have already said, they'll be like, well, was this essential? And it's like, no, it's a novel. Like, nothing's essential. <laughs> It's not, that's not the point. Um, I mean, the way we did the cuts, or I did the cuts primarily, was just small pervasive cuts. So it was like sentences and paragraphs. Um, and so it wasn't like it lost a whole plot line um, or a whole element. And that helped. So, and especially by the end when I was reading the page proofs for the second time and, you know, getting copy edits, two rounds of page proofs, and each time it's 750, or yeah, about that in manuscript still. Um, it was like, oh, this book can't be one word longer. <laughs> I cannot read it again. <laughs> but um, I know we're not talking about Scrivener yet, but I think part of the length was also that I just wasn't aware of how long it was. I knew the total word count, but until I had to sort of convert it to word, I didn't know how many pages it was. What, what was the word count when you first finished the draft? Um, I'm thinking, what, 900 pages, 300,000 words, It was maybe? right under 300,000 words. It was 980 yeah. pages, yeah. Wow. Okay. And you printed this all out, so you got the big stack yeah. of paper to make it look really imposing. Yeah, I had to carry it in like a box. <laughs> it was two <laughs> reams of paper. It was insane. Yeah. One of the things I noticed in the novel is there's 
a lot of relationships, there's a lot of sex, but none of the main characters can be said to be lucky in love. Yeah, it was funny. A, a writer friend of mine, while I was drafting it, asked if it was a love story. And my initial answer was like, no, absolutely not. Um, but then I sort of thought about it. And it is, you know, the story of kind of all the loves in Marion's life. And, and other people do have, have love relationships. But it's certainly not a marriage plot, um, which was a conscious decision, I think, from the beginning. Yeah, I mean, a love story means you have to pretty much have a happy ending. And this is more a story where love is involved with multiple characters, with Marion, with Jamie, with their friend Caleb, etc. And Hadley, of course, who has all these exotic relationships with people, many of which are caught on film by paparazzi. Yes. <laughs> there's, one, there's one interesting quote, though, that after the, um, the Fuhrer had, had died down about her relationship with someone who wasn't the person in the film, in the Archangel series, she says, no one was staking out my gate anymore. The paparazzi had lost interest. Abandonment stings, even when it means freedom. Yeah, I think, you know, Hadley is in this sort of very privileged but also impossible position where being famous is horrible in so many ways, but it's also the kind of central metric of success for her. Um, and being less famous means that her career is ebbing. And so how do you sort of grapple with that? It's, it seems impossible in a way. On the other hand, Marion is constantly hiding things about herself. Early on, she hides that she's a girl. She hides her marriage later, and she hides a lot about herself. We obviously won't give away any spoilers about the ending, but it seems like she's constantly hiding herself. Yeah. I mean, some of that is driven by um, practicalities. You know, she's, how do I become a pilot and then it turns out sort of posing as a boy to a degree is like one way to make some money and and get what she wants and sort of um you know and another time she changes her identity is to get away from someone so there's that element but it was funny well during the period I was writing the book um my life really shifted course in a way and it was my first two books came out within two years of each other in 2012 and 2014. And I was like, I'm just going to be someone who writes a book every two years. Um, and sort of two years... <laughs> Little did you know that you would get to 300,000 words. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Two years into writing the first draft, um, the first draft ended up taking three years and three months. But two years into that... Um, I had written about 450 pages and I realized I wasn't halfway through and it was such a dark day. And I, I was like, everyone's going to forget about me, but like nobody knows who you are when you're a novelist anyway, and everyone forgets about you in a week. So it really doesn't matter. And at the, that time, kind of early on, like friends of mine were publishing books and I felt sort of left behind. And I realized this was a like a career gamble because I was going to invest years into one project. Um, and so I sort of started travel writing on the side, like partly to fuel the book and um, partly because it's awesome. Uh, and so my life really became a lot more about seeking out these remote places and having these experiences and a lot less about um, my sort of career as a fiction writer. And that ended up being really good for me. So I think, you know, Marion's a very exaggerated version of that, but kind of the just wanting to be left alone to do her thing is something I uh, connected with at the time. And at the same time, you became an adventurer, kind of like Marion did. Yeah, it was really strange sort of uh, merging with a character in some ways. I mean, she's definitely not me. But um, yeah, I, I thought, you know, I'd, it seems necessary to me to see the polar regions. And so I pitched stories and I got there. 
Um, and then one thing would sort of lead to another. I'd, you know, get another assignment or I'd make friends and be able to to do more trips in these, these places. Um, and so, yeah, my sort of tolerance for risk evolved and my um, kind of understanding of, of more remote adventurous travel, which of course fed the character, but also really left a mark. As a journalist myself, I can appreciate the tactic of pitching an article to be able to go someplace paid for or buy something paid for that you want. <laughs> yeah, it's that's a the really way to good do hustle, it. yeah. Yeah. And you didn't learn to fly, but you did go up in a number of planes to feel what it was like. You went up in the, the same kind of old planes, didn't you? Yeah, I did. I thought about learning to fly. I really didn't want to. And that seemed like a good reason not to do it. Um, but I would sort of take opportunities to go on in sort of historic aircraft or you know, planes that landed on skis on snow and ice, like Marion's. Um, my, my sort of fortuitous, uh, coincidental thing that happened was I was at the Aviation Museum in Missoula, and these two guys were taking a plane out, and they were like, tell that lady she can come along. And so I went up with them in a 1927 Traveler 6000, um, which then I decided to make the plane Marion Learns to Fly because I touched it, I smelled it, and I would seen Missoula from the vantage of it. I had video of it. Um, so that was incredibly helpful. Yes, and there's a quote in the novel, the Bolanka, that's the name of the plane, gets wrecked and patched so many times, it's a jumbled mass of spare parts flying in formation, as Alaskans say. <laughs> yeah, Alaskan flying is such an interesting sort of subworld um, because it's so ordinary there, you know, it's so practical. And I think it's still by far the most per capita pilots are in Alaska. Okay, we're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about how you use Scrivener. Writing a book, screenplay, or even a long article is a juggling act. You need to find the right words and the right structure, keep track of research, and refer to notes. Tailor-made for long writing projects, Scrivener is the go-to app for writers of all types. Scrivener combines a typewriter, binder, and corkboard in a single app. A project outline makes it easy to get an overview of your work and flip between sections. Refer to research alongside your writing and just drag and drop to rearrange your work. Write in any order in sections as large or small as you like and let Scrivener stitch it all together when you're ready to share your words with the world. With Scrivener, you'll find everything you need to start writing and keep writing. Scrivener is available for Mac, Windows, iPad, and iPhone. Download the free trial from ScrivenerApp.com. Right now with Scrivener listeners can get a 20% discount with the coupon code PODCAST. That's ScrivenerApp.com. Okay, so before we start talking about how you use Scrivener, let's briefly talk about the Booker Prize. How does it feel to be shortlisted for the Booker? It's not your first prize. You also won the Dylan Thomas Prize for your first novel. So I guess you're used to this. <laughs> yeah, the Booker is so much more high stakes and larger scale. It's really a different experience. I mean, of course, it's exciting. It's... Um I think this shortlist period is kind of, there's something really nice about it because you know you get to go to London and participate in all the kerfuffle, um, but you haven't had to not win yet. So, um, <laughs> yeah, I'm really, I'm just, you know, thrilled to be included and it is a little bit anxiety inducing, but that's okay. Is sleep hard to come by these days? No, I've been, I've been sleeping pretty well. Um, 
And we're just sort of now getting the schedule. So it's a little bit modified for COVID. But, you know, I was thinking about the writers last year who who did the book around Zoom. And I'm really glad I can at least go. Yeah. One thing I find interesting is that this year the Booker judges have to read 158 novels. I don't know how they do it. I would never do it. And they read the shortlist books three times because they read them once. I thought they only read them twice. I thought they only read the shortlist the second time so they're familiar for the final judging. They read it, you know, once before the long list and then once to go from the long list to the shortlist and then they read the shortlist again. Yeah. That's a full-time job. It's so much reading. I can't, I can't imagine. Yeah. Okay, so Scribner, you thanked Scribner without which this book would not be possible. And let's, I hope if you win the booker, you will mention Scribner. As, <laughs> no, 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 no. You're not going to dedicate your prize to Scribner. Have you been using Scribner for a long time? Did you use it since your first novel? No, I wrote my first two novels on Microsoft Word, um, just in one single document, I think. Um, and then I think, I can't, I've been trying to remember how I heard about Scrivener, and I think it's possible I just Googled, like, novel writing software or something like that, because as I was about to start writing Great Circle, I just, the thought of this endless Word document filled me with dread, you know, how difficult it is to move anything around within it. Um, and so, however I found it, I found Scrivener, and I did the whole tutorial thing, um, and then, so as I started writing Great Circle, that was right when I was getting to know it and, um, right when I started using it. So how do you use Scrivener? I use it in a pretty basic way. I think when I first got it, I had big plans to use the cork board and to color code things for the characters. And eventually that just sort of dropped off. I mean, I primarily use the binder to sort of organize the book. And for a book this complex, it was unbelievably helpful just to be able to see it laid out or at least fractions of it. I would sometimes have to make like sort of an outline so I, I could sort of see the ratio between Marion and Hadley and where the Hadley sections were falling. Um, and so sometimes I would set, you know, sections side by side and the, the editing pane, I was, um, uh, go into the mode where it blocks everything out when I'm actually writing. I can't remember what that's called. Composition mode. Yes. Thank you. Um, and I would use other sort of documents and folders to sort of keep bits that I'd cut. You know, I'd, I'd have a file called Cut Bits, and it would just be so I could get back to it if I changed my mind. And I think I did have a document for each of the main characters where I just kept track of their date of birth and things like that. So I could I could figure out how old everyone was at any given moment. Yes, because each chapter in the novel has a date at the beginning of the chapter. Yeah, which I managed to get tons of those wrong, like even through to copy edits. <laughs> copy editor is probably like, oh my God, why did you do this to us? Um, but I'm so dependent on it now. Like even for writing magazine stories, I'll do it in Scrivener and I'll have a document that's transcribed interviews and a document that's notes and then a document that's my actual draft um, so I can move between them. And do you use the research folder a lot? I, I assume that you must have had scans of research for this novel. I did so much research. Um, I did put some things into my Scrivener document. Um, I ended up not using it a lot. And some of that was just that my research was so kind of 
ongoing and catch as catch can. So when I needed a piece of information, I'd find it and then I just put it in. So I know some authors will spend a year before they start writing researching and have an elaborate filing system. And I just kind of have to, to do it as needed. You're the eighth guest I've had on this podcast. And you are the eighth person who uses Striver differently than all the other people. We had someone who uses it only to store research. We've had people who use outlining and granular outlining. And other people who just you know, just kind of use one or two files. And I think, I'm not going to sell Scribner to you, but the composition mode is one of the greatest things because then you can block out the rest of the world and you don't have to see your menus and anything else. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I really miss it when I don't have it. Like when I've tried to write things in Word or I'm doing back and forth edits and I, I want I want that feature. And um, it just felt so cumbersome. <laughs> comparison. So your next book is a book of short stories coming out next year. Have you written those in Scrivener or are these older than your novels? They are older. Yeah. I think I wrote them all between 2007 when I was actually still in grad school and um, 2017. And so they've all been published in journals and things like that. Um, And so I never, yeah, I don't think I ever converted that draft to Scrivener. I think it's just been in Word and has been maddening in its own way. Do you have a writing routine? Are you get up, have coffee, start writing? Are you writing any time of the day? If you're, well, if pre-COVID you were traveling as a travel journalist, then you obviously can't have a fixed routine for writing fiction, can you? No. Um, yeah, I've never been super, super consistent. There are definitely periods when I am writing a lot and I will work usually every day. Um, I didn't really observe a weekend. And my, my favorite sort of mode of working would be to get up, um, I'd sort of bribe myself with coffee. I'd be like, you can have a huge iced latte, but you have to take your computer down the street to the cafe and work for three hours, you know? And so I'd go to that and I, I really found that pleasant. I liked having this pre-COVID, of course, I liked having people sort of around and I found it really enlivening and three to three hours would be like a pretty average work day for me. I think I definitely had days that were seven or eight hours um, and days that were shorter and then there were certainly long periods where I didn't work at all, like um, when I was traveling and it might be weeks or a month uh, where I just didn't work on my fiction. And I kind of had to just decide to be fine with that. When you're writing journalism, does your writing routine change? Um, not necessarily. I'll, I'll kind of, I like to do the same thing to take my computer out of the house and um, go get some work done. But I guess I have worked on trips. Like I remember I was on a, a magazine assignment to Antarctica kind of late in the edits process for Great Circle. And I was sitting in a lounge um, on Scrivener uh, working on it. And this lady came up to me and she goes, oh, are you writing a little story? <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, I'm writing a truly enormous, cumbersome story. <laughs> but, <laughs> but yes. <laughs> It's interesting what non-writers think writers do, the, the <laughs> perception people have of that. Most writers are really good at procrastinating. What's your favorite way of procrastinating? Oh, I mean, it has to be the internet. I, just everybody's <laughs> answer, I'm sure. Like, I've been doing copy edits this week on my um, short story collection, and it's incredible. My, I feel genuine shame at how much I'll be like, well, let's just see what's going on on Twitter, you know? And I, I haven't made use of... Um, uh, any of those apps that sort of disable your Wi-Fi, but I probably should. 
<laughs> well, I feel like one addendum to my writing routine is that I was surprised during the pandemic or during deep COVID um, how unproductive I was. And I've heard this from other people, too, because, of course, you think, oh, what I need is uninterrupted time at home. And and I'd been traveling so much. Like in 2019, I was out of the country for over 100 days. You know, and it was such a wash. It was so unproductive. And I kind of started things and abandoned them. Um and I, I think I really miss just being able to go out in the world and, and talk to people and whatnot. And so I have started something new, but I started sort of right before Great Circle came out. And since then, it's just been really kind of Great Circle focused time still, even though it's been five months. Yeah. I can imagine if you were away from home 100 days in a year, COVID must have been quite a shock. <laughs> Yeah, it. I mean, of course, it is for everyone in, in different ways. And I know people with little kids, that's a whole other animal. But um, yeah, it was, it was very strange. Although I, I am used to being quite solitary. Um, I have a, a super serious boyfriend now, but um, I've spent so much time alone that in some ways I was really well suited to the sort of solitary aspect of it. And that, that didn't bother me as much as it did some people. But you know, I, I probably needed a break from the travel writing, but a global catastrophe seemed like overkill. <laughs> <But>. <laughs> Will you go back to travel writing again? Yeah. Um, because it sounds like you really enjoyed that, being able to discover all these places on someone else's dime. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I really do enjoy it. And it's 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 hard. I think like a lot of people think, oh, you just take a trip and you write about it. And the more I do it, in some ways, the more appreciation I have for how difficult it is and for the, the people who are true masters of it are, are special. Um, I'm, I am going to French Polynesia in February on a cruise that I was supposed to go on. I was supposed to leave like March 10th, 2020. <laughs> and really up until... Not the time you'd want to be on a cruise ship, to be honest. <laughs> no, and I really was kind of in denial until I think the couple days before I was supposed to leave uh, was when the NBA shut down and my editor emailed and was like, you're not going on a cruise? I was like, oh, okay. I guess not. Yeah. So yeah, two years later, it's finally happening. But most of COVID for you was what? Copy edits on Great Circle, right? Because by then you'd pretty much finished it? Yeah. I think we're still in our last round of edit edits and then into copy edits and proofs. So it really did take up a lot of that time. I mean, the other travel story I've done recently, I went to Alaska in July for outside, um, and it was a all-women's backpacking trip. So some of, some things are, you know, uh, have been possible. I did a couple road trippy things, too. Okay, before we finish, do you have any books you can recommend to our listeners? What are you reading these days that's grabbed your attention? You know, I just read Sag Harbor, Colson Whitehead's older book. Um, And I just find it so pleasurable. It's such a slice of summer and it's so funny. I love a book that makes me laugh just through the language and and it really has. So um, it's been a really nice just escape. (laughs) Okay, Maggie Shipstead, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. It was so fun. If you like the podcast, please follow it in iTunes or your favorite podcast app. To learn more about Scrivener, go to ScrivenerApp.com. Join us next month for another conversation on Right Now with Scrivener. <laughs>